Hey all, welcome to Film Suck, a Patreon podcast in which we ponder the work of art in the age of crap cinema. I'm Eileen Jones. How now? I'm Dolores McElroy. <laughs> you scurvy knave. I don't think that's in there. <laughs> and today we are talking about the new Joel, the new Joel, yeah, Joel Cohen film, The Tragedy of Macbeth. It's currently playing in select theaters as well as on Apple, TV, uh, Apple Plus TV. Um, exciting for me. I generally love all Coen Brothers movies, um, but this is an interesting one because this is especially interesting because this is the first solo Coen Brother film with, with Joel directing, but without his brother, um, Ethan. Uh, it's certainly also the, the first Coen foray into an adaptation of Shakespeare. <laughs> you could hardly <laughs> um, get a more unlikely project than that for the Coen Brothers. Um, and in fact, Joel Cohen has been relating in interviews that he, he'd never have taken it on at all if um, Ethan hadn't wanted to take, he wanted to take a break and do other things, do other creative work. Um, because as he said, this isn't a movie that would ever have interested him. However, it very much interested Joel Cohen's wife, Frances McDormand, who's played that role on stage. She's been trying, apparently, to get him to do some version of it, stage, film, whatever, mm-hmm. for 15 years. And he, Joel Cohen claimed he could, he could never do a stage version, even though he's a huge stage. Both Cohen's are stage aficionados. They get a lot of their great actors from the stage, often making, giving them whole careers in film they never would have had before. But he did say about this particular stage version, Macbeth, I wouldn't have had the slightest idea what to do. I told Fran um, it was something that I could get a, my head around as a movie. So <laughs> he's really in, in, underscoring how much of a movie he's been trying to make this. So first, let's talk about that before we get into any of the daunting seriousness, <laughs> if we ever get into the daunting seriousness of, of discussing Shakespeare. Um, let's just talk about how we feel about it as a movie. Oh, I thought, it, I thought it succeeds brilliantly. I think mm-hmm. if you'd never read or seen Shakespeare, it would the story would be legible to you. Mm-hmm. Um Eileen, I read your review of the tragedy of, of Macbeth and Jacobin, mm-hmm. and I totally agree. I think it's it makes things really crystal clear. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it does. Uh, I guess it it like edits and um, condenses the play um, mm-hmm. to great effect. You know, um, so it's 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 gorgeous. I love the look of it. To me, it looks a lot like the or the Orson Welles film from the fifties. It's black and white and there's the set is quite abstract and um, Mm -hmm. there's something about it that's like that 1950s idea of like high Mm -hmm. art abstractness that Mm -hmm. I really love. Like it's not Mm -hmm. um, um, it was so refreshing to not see, you know, the like mud huts of uh, (laughs) trying to like be recreated, you know, with everyone like covered in hair and filth. Um, (laughs) It's such a tired move. So it was just like absolutely refreshing to the eyes, crystal clear, um, really driving because it's Shakespeare and this play has amazing, you know, propulsive energy. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was exciting. It was I I loved it. What did you think? Oh, yeah, I I was completely thrilled. And I had had my doubts when I first saw the preview. I was oddly dubious considering it's the Coens and I love it but I for exactly that reason I thought oh geez they're really doing what's been done this looks very I thought the Mm. same thing like this looks very Orson Wellesy yeah um very Cohen very typical of the Coens to kind of grab you with really intense unmissable stylistic choices right off the bat yes so the word when comes up (laughs) you know in big white letters on black and then you hear um, the witch, the witches, even the number of them is being called into question as well as the nature of them. Um, 
saying, you know, where where shall we three meet again in thunder, lightning, or in rain? You know, so starting with the kind of witch's um, contemplation of going to work essentially on on, on Macbeth. Mm-hmm. Um, but the when is the only word other than tomorrow, which is very much toward the end of the film, toward the climactic um, um, point of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the only two, two words that are come up printed um, um, as text on the on the image. So right away, they're putting you on high alert if you love formal flourishes, which I do. <laughs> yes. So we'll get into it, like what the whole time element is about. Um, it seems to be very much, you know, it's, it's, it's not like it's a, it's a whole, it's again, it's not a wholly new take on, on Macbeth. No. You know, clearly time is, is a thing. And this is being referenced throughout very intensely, the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech. Mm-hmm. That confusing line I can't do if, if twere done when twere done, then tis well twere done quickly, or some crazy mass of tenses that are very confusing as <laughs> Macbeth gears himself up to kill King Duncan in order to put himself in power as king. Yeah. Um, so there's all of these lines that are constantly referencing a relationship to time that's built into the text, but the Coens are finding highly a kind of combination of the, of the theatrical emphasis on text and the cinematic. They're going to make those words big pictorial elements so that kind of move i always find thrilling and is it because as it gets to be rarer and rarer yes it's uh, in american filmmaking you know i you're making me think that that i mean for me that's the strongest point of this film it's a like amazing um marriage of things that we would think of as like quote-unquote theatrical meaning like Mm -hmm. uh, you know very obviously symbolic um and exciting and thrilling in their symbolism you know and in the way that they're strung together and also things that can only uh, those, you know, quote, theatrical sort of like moves um, only Mm -hmm. being conveyed by like very specifically cinematic means. So like one example that comes to mind is Mm -hmm. um, the hallucination of the dagger. Mm-hmm. You know, Macbeth hallucinates seeing a dagger the night that he kills Duncan. And mm-hmm. in the film, uh, it's amazing because you do just see this sliver of light that seems to be coming through two large closed doors. And mm-hmm. Macbeth is seeing it from far away. And as he approaches, you know, this dagger-like thing glimmers in the distance. And you can't really tell, like, is this just like a crack in the door? Is he really mm-hmm. um, hallucinating? And mm-hmm. as you finally, after the the monologue is over... You, uh, or soliloquy, I guess you'd say. Mm. Um, uh, yes. <laughs> the, the camera approaches the door and you see that it's just light glinting off a door handle. But door handle. that could yeah. never be conveyed theatrically. You know? Exactly. Exactly. It's such a cinematic. But at the same time, the way the, the especially the buildings are handled, but actually everything really, it's, it's, it has a kind of play-like quality in its starkness. Yes. And it's, and it's not making a bid for outdoor realism or indoor realism. Right. They didn't go over and find themselves a Scottish castle with masses of mud around it or anything like that. Right. They didn't do any of that. It's clearly sets that are very artfully handled, but again, in a way that's cinematic, in a way that's intensely movie-like. So that's, that's one of my favorite scenes. It's a great montage. Mm-hmm. Of and it's a great monologue of a monologue soliloquy. Whatever. Right? I mean, they're like. I, I think they're the same thing. I don't really know. Just they are. I, you, I feel like, Shakespeare. You always have to say soliloquy. Word. <laughs> Where he's he's he, it's so complex as he sees it, 
He's mocking himself for seeing, of course, what the projected, what is probably only the workings of his mind. He's kind of laughing at himself, but it's very creepy because he's also saying, oh, but I'm going to grasp thee. I'm going to do it now. So you see his whole mental process down this very long corridor, <laughs> cutting to his feet, cutting to his face, cutting to the image of, is it the light? Is it What is it down there? Mm-hmm. Um, that's so beautifully put together. And, it, and again, it makes for exciting cinema, which is a huge part of this project. I mean, Joel Cohen said i want this to be really for people who are a little daunted by shakespeare maybe maybe wouldn't want to watch shakespeare it should be highly watchable that's what i really want Mm -hmm. it to be Mm -hmm. so that's already to me exciting because indeed most people are very very daunted by shakespeare there's all of that shakespearean verse (laughs) to get through that can be a huge challenge if you haven't really been drilled into it we used to be Mm -hmm. people used to have to read a a lot the very least you read Macbeth. yeah the shortest Probably the liveliest. You got it somewhere in junior high or high school. I'm not sure they, they still do. I'm not sure. But I just get a feeling like we used to have to, we would wound up reading more Shakespeare. It was a big part of American culture. Yes. You had to read Shakespeare. Um, probably a bigger part than it is now. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I grew up with it. I grew up watching uh, uh uh, the Chicago Shakespeare Theater is a great company, and I went to those plays a lot. And my mm-hmm. family just kind of dug Shakespeare. Uh, it's not like I'm an expert or anything, but I do feel like you're right. It was kind of you know, it's like a a thing that was just like in the water <laughs> for most mm-hmm. most people, um, you know, up until very recently. And it's, uh, I guess, it, you know, it is daunting if with all the strange words, but. I've I've always found that like um especially when you see it on stage if you mm-hmm. have good actors you know they can convey to you what is happening and I really like for me that was the virtue of Frances McDormand's performance when she mm-hmm. speaks I see images you know, I don't know. She just has this. Um, she's not saying it. in. Uh, I thought her delivery was like rather contemporary or yes, mm-hmm, contemporary. Very. Yeah, I thought so, too. Yeah. But mm-hmm. she had um, uh, to me, it seemed like she had the most precise vision of like every beat of poetry that she spoke, because mm-hmm. when she spoke them, all I can say is uh, pictures were painted in my mind, you know? Mm-hmm. And so if you see Shakespeare performed like that, then there's there really aren't many barriers to understanding it, in my experience. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's when you're reading it that you really tend to wrestle and you're having to consult footnotes and all the rest of yeah. it. Yeah. Um, it's immense help to have it, have it performed for you. I, I was telling Dolores before we started, I have, you know, for whatever reason, my luck has been horrific when it comes to seeing Shakespeare performed. I've seen <laughs> just the worst. I don't think I've ever seen a really good Shakespearean performance. It's almost always been a train wreck of just unbelievable performance oh, of proportions. Tragic. I don't know why that is. <laughs> Every time I have tried, it has just gone horribly. <laughs> so I don't have, you know, I cannot set myself up as any of, you know, there are a lot of people who go on when they go to, you know, evaluate Shakespearean performance can really compare it to, oh, well, Denzel Washington's Macbeth compared to so-and-so or so-and-so or so-and-so, and they can talk in a very learned way. Yeah. Um, of comparing performances that they've seen, they, they know the language well, all that. I cannot say that that is the case for me. What I loved about it, I watched it twice in a row just because I do that for all Cohen films. The first time, almost always, they're so, their style is so strong and they can knock you off balance so readily. And it's also, they tend to do such rich work that the first time often you miss a ton. So to, mm-hmm. to review it all, I usually watch it again really fast. So I did. And I was delighted with how quickly 
the rhythm of the language and the sense of the language became almost habitual. I started sort of thinking yes. <laughs> in the rhythm. They were it was very there. The rhythms are very very strong, mm -hmm. and once you get into them, they're it's really delightful to be in them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I don't know mm -hmm. it, how Eileen. Do you know how they rewrote like who they consulted to edit their version oh. of Macbeth? Shoot, there is someone. Okay. There was some scholar, and I meant to oh, write yeah. it down, and I forgot that Joel Cohen, I think it's in the New York Times interview with him, where he Yeah, he's from Montreal. This guy from Montreal. That he worked with. Yes. Okay. But, but I'd be surprised if he did more than initial consulting. The Coens are very bold in what they want to do. Mm. <laughs> you know, you know, Joel Cohen says something like, it's remarkable to me how much pulp noir is is clearly related to Mac, you know influenced by Macbeth you know yeah. pulp noir is their whole reason for being when they started movies they were addicts of you know H Hammett and Chandler and James M Kane and you know, they worshipped those so if you if you read you know Ethan Cohen's um, short story writing or that you read their scripts or you pay attention to the language in their movies hugely influenced by pulp slash film noir conventions so he that he's still finding what he wants to find i kind of like that dagger is that a dagger i see before me is that pulp noir i see before me yeah. <laughs> um joel, joel cohen is finding it still in Macbeth. and you know when you think about it the cohen's obsessed with the failure to bring something off like a crime <laughs> or or a relationship or a whole bunch of things and here you have you know the murder that succeeds but ev everything falling apart is very much something they're the kind of material that they they tend to be very comfortable with yes okay that makes total sense um mm -hmm. do you and uh, do you think that the the noir sensibility has to do with the world view of this particular play i would think it's just the, the whole the world that you're introduced to from the beginning is what is it the in the in the something in foul air, mm -hmm. something in foul air. It's the it's part of the witch's monologue that opens it, and you see these crows, and the and the and the witches also take the form of crows are wheeling overhead in this kind of foggy, this kind of dirty looking fog, mm -hmm. and the sense that you know it's very strong in Macbeth. Throughout the weather is almost uniformly terrible, <laughs> as if to reflect human you know dark human doings. Though it seems to have stirred up all the natural elements in the world in a really bad way. Mm -hmm. You know, that's also very typical of film noir. Endless fogs, endless rains, endless sense of, of human beings lost in their world, unable to navigate their own world, uncertain of what even what's motivating themselves. That whole self-estrangement thing is very big in film noir. Not only are you estranged by your culture, yeah. um, but you find your own deeds somewhat inexplicable often. And so, so to watch Macbeth tortured and and almost from the minute he does the deed, ru a ruined man. He's a ruined man from that point, but he can't stop. Yeah. the bloody fight to hang on to power, even when it's lost. You know, everything is kind of lost meaning. That ex existential loss of meaning is a huge deal mm. in in that kind of pulp noir material. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And it, it kind of puts me in mind of what you wrote about Throne of Blood. Um, you know, as as you said in your reviews of both Tragedy of Macbeth mm -hmm. and the little piece you wrote about Throne of Blood this week for mm -hmm. Film Suck, um, each, each Macbeth, although yes, the world that it's going to dwell in, just thanks to the, you know, Shakespeare blueprint uh -huh. um is going to be a, a world that's corrupt um mm. each each macbeth has its own way of motivating the evil deeds of the macbeth couple right 
Mm-hmm. And Throne of Blood, I believe you said, has, right. you know, the, the Lady Macbeth character there mm-hmm. is more paranoid because she knows that she lives in a world where everyone is waiting to grab power through, right. you know, any means necessary. And it's just mm-hmm. kill or be killed. And right. to me, this this actually made a lot of sense, um, especially with the birds as the bad omens. As mm. we as we know, I have watched and rewatched the entirety of The Sopranos <laughs> twice um, in the last like four months, and it seems like this is the world of Macbeth. You know, it's like it's like a mafia world where you can never discern mm-hmm. anyone's true intentions. Everyone's on the verge of being murdered all the time, mm-hmm. and, all the time. Yeah, and this is the world of you know, of course, like medieval Europe as well where you've got all of these changing alliances historically that are oftentimes opaque. And so things like um, superstitions around, you know, birds, birds as bad omens, a bird in, you know, in your house is a very bad sign. And there are always Mm -hmm. birds fluttering into Macbeth's castle and out of it. Mm you read, obviously, you're reading any sign, uh, signs of nature, signs of super nature mm-hmm. <laughs> for, for anything mm-hmm. it can tell you. So I love the way that, you know, obviously that kind of world like breeds and thrives on superstition, um, right. which I think this. And the Coens aren't even harping on it. You're right. They're letting it it lie much more than, say, Kurosawa does. Kurosawa gets very explanatory. Mm. Right. So. He makes clear in the in the discussion of the Lady Macbeth figure, they're not called that. They're called Lord and Lady Washizu. It's set in feudal Japan, but they're the, let's just to simplify things, we'll just call them the Lord and Lady Macbeth. Mm-hmm. When they are talking and he's very, he's much more reluctant to act and she's trying to persuade him to act. She lays out how the person who holds power now basically took it by violence, you know, mm-hmm. so that she, she really makes clear that there's a, that's how you get power in this world. And you're just being a fool. So she, if you, if you don't, and there's also a, a kind of time frame thing imposed on them where they're only going to get this one chance You either kill him while he's right there that, that night, mm-hmm. or you'll never, you'll never get it. Right. So that he, but he clearly, clearly Kurosawa was concerned to make clear. How does she, how does she give him that extra push? Or what he of course wants but probably wouldn't have made the movie hadn't had some persuasion so it, it, very very clear about what what a dangerous and betra- world of betrayals um this tends to be and violent seizures of power in the cohen version they don't harp on that nearly as much mm-hmm. other than the fact that that you know when we first see Macbeth, he's coming home triumphant as the as the main the the main general who put down a rebellion in an attempt to seize power before him. Mm-hmm. And so you've got, you've, you've basically got the witches, the weather and that fact to tell you, yeah, this is a, <laughs> this is a dark and dangerous world. And, and other little indications. One of the, I think it's the younger son of the murdered Duncan and the two sons immediately flee. Right. The scene thinking we will probably be killed next. Um, says something like there are daggers in men's smiles. Yes. Here. So in other words, you can't trust any you can't trust any of these smilers around us. We could anyone could be coming to kill us at any time. So so it's it's much more subtly handled right. than it is in in the Kurosawa version. Yeah. So and you know there is always that worry about the especially now about the Lady Macbeth character. Mm-hmm. I was a little grateful. I thought I thought just from reading some preliminary stuff that they were really going to go for, how do we exonerate Lady Macbeth? Oh, basically. God. How do we make her not too bad? That's hilarious. Is so dumb. <laughs> I mean, again, for the record, for those in back, women 
<laughs> experience the whole range of human emotions and characteristics. We are not the nice ones. We are not the sweet, uh, trustworthy, blah, blah, blah ones. We are just as likely to stick a knife in someone's back as a man is, okay? Yeah. So that nonsense, like how we can't have an evil Lady Macbeth or a bad actor Lady Macbeth just is maddening. Oh, it's so bad. So Thank God they didn't go for that. Well, yeah. I, yeah, no, this connects. So I was, you know, I've read a lot about the Olivier version, not on screen, but mm-hmm. on stage. There was a famous version with yeah. Vivian Lee and Laurence Olivier because uh, Vivian Lee was married to Laurence Olivier, as um, I know you know, <laughs> saying it for the listeners. Um, so they, in I think 1955, they put on a fabulous, legendary production of Macbeth that even Kenneth Tynan, Vivian Lee's harshest critic, um, had to admit Mm. was pretty fucking good. But the whole motivation Mm. for Macbeth's actions in that production was Vivian Mm. Lee's or Lady Macbeth's um, Mm. sexual manipulation. Right. You know, and it kind of speaking of film noir, you know, making her like a pretty classic femme fatale. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it works. It sure does. You know, Mm -hmm. is it a little more misogynist? Yeah, but it's motivated by the text. And I would imagine it could be motivated by Vivian Lee's performance um, Mm because she's pretty good at that. Um, So but this has a different take. Um, As you write this, the motivation Mm -hmm. here is that it's it's late for this couple. They yes. they have had ambitions and that have not yet been fulfilled and they're running out of time. Mm-hmm. Right? So right. what do they call it? A, a postmenopausal Lady Macbeth? Yes. <laughs> That's what Joel Cohen calls it. Postmenopausal Lady Macbeth. Uh, postmenopausal Macbeth. Oh, okay. They're both old yeah. and they're childless. And they've clearly been thwarted in their ambitions. Um, she is even more clear about it than he is. That you know, it, it's it's now truly now or never in, in that way for them. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, do you think that um, I I didn't see as much of the sexual manipulation with this no, particular couple? No, I didn't couple. see it at all. Okay. They, they seem a kind of solid, united couple. And I, and I actually liked the way well before he ever gets back home to her, he's written her a letter. So she knows about the prophecy. Mm-hmm. And I think she knows that he's already been made Thane of, of Cawdor, mm-hmm. which is the first step. He's been told by the witches he's going to be he's going to rise to that level and then he's going to be king. So the first thing has come true. But he writes her this letter that ignites immediately in her like the, the, any kind of dormancy in her ambition is is set alight again. And she literally lights the letter on fire and casts it upward into the starry sky, oh, yeah. which then comes beautifully down. Down this from the starry sky onto the starry robes worn by King Duncan, <laughs> which for me is a beautiful segue. I think they're great. Of course, Richard Brody of the New Yorker thought that was comical, thought the mm. whole movie was idiotic. <gasps> you know, but he's always wrong. He's like legendary. In oh, his he's the dumbest critic. I- he's the dumbest critic, oh. <laughs> and he's been for I don't know 107 years. <laughs> he's, he's he's an old man. He's been there for a long time, but he's always wrong. So I was very reassured when I read. He thinks it's a despicable, awful. That's how you know adaptation. it's good. Yeah. That's how I knew it was good. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, so, but, but before Macbeth ever gets home, before his lady can ever start working on, you know, making sure any qualms he has are, are quelled, he has already demonstrated that the, the flame of his own ambition have been lit. Mm-hmm. He goes into a tent to meet the king. The king says, you know, congratulations, you're, I'm going to build you up. You're going to be a big noise because I'm of my gratitude, blah, 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 mm-hmm. all these wonderful speeches. But then the king proceeds to make his, to announce that his son is his, of course, heir to the throne. 
and he makes him, what is it, Prince of Cumberland. Mm. And immediately, Macbeth gets a queasy, and, and, and I have to say, Denzel Washington does a really nice queasy look. <laughs> when he's really not happy, he does a smile that really makes it look like he's sick to his stomach. And he, and he pleads that he has to get home to his wife to bear her all this good news mm-hmm. right away. And as he comes out of the tent, he whips back the tent, furious, the tent flap furiously, and says something like, you know, Prince of Cumberland. I've got to, I've got to overleap this barrier. It is in my way. I can't remember the lines. Mm -hmm. But so he's, it's the prophecy. It's the prophecy that the witches have told him that have made him even more ambitious than he realizes. I think he realizes at that moment how like, God damn it. I want that throne (laughs) to the point that I didn't even know. And it has a quality of moving very fast. Mm-hmm. The film seems to just be racing, like things are happening almost before you can take them in. And again, all ignited by just being told you're going to be this thing. At that point, the impatience of both Lord and Lady Macbeth is sky high. They they want it now. Yeah. And so he goes, he goes stalking off through the night, you know, basically saying, "Let I hope no one can see from looking at me what my dark desires are. Mm-hmm. So, so that's important that she, it isn't her like you know, manipulating him into a position where he, he already wants it. Yeah. He is going to have, of course, he's going to, he's a much shakier conniver than she is. Right. So she's going to be full, full of contempt every time he wavers. And then she's going to have to bring everything to bear to get, get him back to where he was when he first, presumably when he first came home. Yeah. And this works so well for McDormand because you get the sense from her other roles. Like that's how she is. You know, she says she's going to do something. (laughs) She's going to effing do it. And if you don't, you know, like you better get on board. So I, yeah, I think there's a line reading that Joel Cohen said. She really gave it a lot of oomph where he said, but, and if we fail and she says, we fail. But she says, <laughs> and, this guy, and then of course she goes on to say, but if we, you know, blah, 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 if we screw our courage to the sticking point, we won't fail. Yeah. But it's a kind of imp- abrupt, impatient way of saying, if she's not meditating on, oh my God, what if we fail? He's right. There's none of that. And, and Joel Cohen said, oh no, that was Francis. <laughs> she's very like that. <laughs> she's, yes. she's marvelous. I mean, I like, obviously she's going to get all the Oscars. So I hope, so I hope. Although maybe yeah. maybe she's gotten too many. Is there like a limit? <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, she's got it for Nomadland. That's right. It wasn't that last year. Yeah. I think it was last yeah. Year. Yes, she just got it. She literally just got it. Yeah. What do we think about Denzel Washington? He's a little more. He didn't do it for me. There... He's he, he's a little more like, huh? Yeah. There's a number of scenes where I was like, I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not sure I know what he's doing. Yeah. There are moments when he you're right. He's really good at that, like hidden disgust thing. Um, yeah. He's kind of beautifully melancholic. You can be like yes. really sympathetic to him in, in strange ways mm-hmm. sometimes. But uh, when uh, most of the time when he was speaking his lines, my mind wandered and mm. I just thought I had to concentrate really hard and I, I can't pinpoint it. But I like he wasn't it wasn't becoming vivid to me. It was kind of deflated in a way that I can't account for. I, I don't mm. know. What did you think? I thought I thought it was uneven where certain scenes he really seemed to be strong and really to be knocking. Like, again, the dagger scene. I thought he did a really. Yeah, that was and, great. And you're right brooding melancholy or or the, the the scene where he says something like well now if i had died an hour before i, I would have led a great life mm-hmm. you know, it's, he's in the midst of the murder in the aftermath um so there's certain moments that come across well but others you're right where where it's like the language it just doesn't do it isn't doing anything 
Yeah, I thought I thought Brendan Gleeson was wonderful. Holy he's a very shit! Small role as King Duncan. He, he it's like he was born. Yeah, <laughs> he was born speaking this way, and it doesn't seem at all. It's it's perfectly clear, and it does not seem at all artificial. It's a miracle. Yeah, it doesn't seem old. It's language. just yeah, it doesn't seem old. Seems immediate. Uh, he's great. So he's so great that he, in fact, you know, it shows up a little. There's a little unevenness in the performances in general. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Where you're you're kind of aware of who's really who's really sucking it across and who's like, uh, maybe not so much. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I don't, I wish I thought Lady Macduff was very good. Oh yes. She was marvelous. I agree. Yes, yeah, she was. And no, I've got her name written. Where have I got her name? Hold on. It's it's, I have it. I have it. She is Moses Ingram. You might remember her from Queens Gambit. She's the, she's sort of the second lead friend of at school friend of, um, um, the lead played play by Anya Taylor-Joy. That's the only thing I've seen her in. Otherwise, She's terrific. Mm-hmm. She's Lady Macduff. Yeah. And again, incredibly natural yeah. command of speech. I mean, she just doesn't seem to be fighting the language at all. It just seems she's way better, I think, than the guy who plays her husband, though he's he's fine. Corey, Corey Hawkins is Macduff. Yeah. And that's quite a sizable role. He just didn't seem to me, he wasn't as impressive. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I um mm-hmm. I I really appreciated the fight scenes <laughs> with Denzel. Mm-hmm. I thought when mm-hmm. there's this amazing yes. scene where a person comes to slay him yeah. before his yeah, big yeah. before the big scene with Macduff. Who the hell is that character? Mm-hmm. I forget who it is. Um, oh yeah, what the hell is his name? Uh, it's like one of Macduff's, you know, comrades. No, it's not Ross. No, no, no. It's, it's, yeah, he's got a smaller part, and I've forgotten. Sorry. Okay, but yeah, he a guy, kind of an advanced guy, comes in. He's very macho, and he thinks he's going to be able to kill Macbeth before the fight even starts. Exactly, and they they staged yeah. it so amazingly because Macbeth thinks to the witch's prophecy, fears no man born of woman yeah. woman of woman born um yeah. and so he fights this guy who's wielding a sword with no with sword, no sword. <laughs> <laughs> and also note denzel washington who was long 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 career has been one of the most beautiful of men who's finally putting on weight yeah <laughs> in that's a true. major way so they had to dress him quite carefully uh, to make you believe he could still be such a, a great warrior, which they do. He's, you know, you know, he's older. Obviously, they're making a point of that. Mm-hmm. But he actually acts that fight scene in a way that convinces you he really could have done it. And it, you know, he's being driven, of course, by this ridiculous belief he has. You know, it's total faith in this prophecy. Yes, that he can't be. He essentially can't be killed because who, who, what, who could say they're not a woman born? Well, it's going to turn out somebody. Yep. <laughs> because the, he was delivered by cesarean section is considered not a woman born. That's going to be McDuff. Yep. So he is going to be. The, the other prophecy is also great. Um, it's only when great Burnham Wood comes marching oh, on his castle so can he be good. defeated. And of course he's like, well, that's impossible because forests don't march, so I can't be defeated. And then, well, things happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you're right. That is a great, great fight scene where he has to convince you with no sword against a man who has one, he could prevail. And he, and he does. This beautifully. Yeah. Uh, oh, it was, it was absolutely fabulous. And I mean, Burnham Wood has been staged, you know, on, on stage, et cetera. In, mm-hmm. in, I mean, the co, you know, Joel Cohen didn't invent mm-hmm. um, that idea, but the, I believe he invented fighting the guy without a sword. <laughs> Not so, a sword. Yeah. That was really, think, as far as I know, really I've awesome. never seen that. Yes. And, and I, I was a little sorry about the way they handled the Burnham Wood scene. Why? Because, because in Kurosawa, he does the greatest version of the marching of Burnham Wood. Ah. What it is, is that the soldiers who are marching on the castle, I guess, are camouflaging their numbers and their equipment by, they, they just, they just hewed down, you know, trees that are small enough that they can carry mm-hmm. and are walking forward carrying trees. And that's why the wood is moving. 
but he he shoots it so that it, they're coming through a dense fog, which has prevailed through most of the film. And so that you're just seeing these trees just, w and he shot it in slight slow-mo so that it seems like the trees are existing in a kind of slightly different time temporality than and we are. It's beautifully eerie. Ooh. And you see, you see Macbeth looking out, just going, oh, oh my God, um, thinking he's seeing the woods marching on his castle. Um, the cones don't do that. They find another way. So someone reports that the woods appear to be moving, and then he just flings open a door, and a, a gust of hu a huge gust of leaves blow. Yes, uh, I didn't love that as much, but, but still, you, it's an inventive move. Well, you do get to see the army suiting up with all the branches. Yes. That's kind of cool. Oh no, you know what's happening. Yeah, you definitely know what's happening. And yeah. there's a bit of foreshadowing, again, specifically cinematic, although like you know, highly symbolic in its effect. Um, mm -hmm. when Lady Macbeth is sleepwalking, um, you yeah. know, the out, out damn spot, there are like leaves mm -hmm. falling in the basin yes. that she's watching and, you know, so it's like, uh, the, the end is nigh. <laughs> so. Yes, exactly. so the persistence of like the fogs, the leaves and the crows and the cawing, yeah. um, are all very nicely to me anyway, nicely, nicely handled to, to add to a kind of, it, the whole thing has a quality of being of being at an at an eerie slight remove from reality which i think is lovely because it really puts you in the emotional kind of the ment the troubled mental state um even being in the in the um the macbeths i don't know what you want to call it castle yeah. yes um um is you know because again it's so much expressionist light and and shadow deep shadows falling and people going in and out of light and shadow that seems very evocative of not only a film noir but of how unreadable people are, right? How different they look in light versus in dark, and what can happen in light versus all that stuff. But it, it, but because it has a slight abstract patterning of black and white, even the outdoor scene. So if there's like in a tent, you'll just see these kind of symbolic branches reflected against the sides of the tent to represent a kind of gnarled nature outside. Mm -hmm. It all has a quality of having taken on the same mood, which is this kind of dire mood, right? Um, of plotting plotting murder plotting a violent ascent, ascent to power all of that stuff that just seems to have seized all of all of these people in the aftermath of this rebellion that shook everything loose including nature so that's to me i love that kind of thing i i'm not a big huge fan of you know this constant sort of demi-realism we do that isn't even particularly realistic usually right. <laughs> if you're looking outside right. it's just a style that we've adopted that's usually boring and and doesn't have a lot of thought behind it it's so boring this is yes yeah it's so boring so boring no this is thrilling and i you know i loved your description in your review of the sets it's uh, like you could easily if you're gonna, gonna go abstract you know these things could easily end up looking like a resort in like you know tempe yeah. or something yeah, like, you gotta be careful <laughs> yeah but they do this amazing job of making um it, it feels very inhospitable all the all of the mm -hmm. like white arches and uh, you know you get mm -hmm. the sense of how fucking cold it is like nothing's mm -hmm. remotely comforting or comfortable i think you barely even see like a fire in the hearth ever that's right you know yes. and um i just think they like marvelous marvelously convey the oof, barrenness you know mm -hmm. um of this whole place um yes yeah. there's no warmth there's no cushions no <laughs> you know when you see the banquet scene where supposedly where banquo is supposed to show up and, and comes in a ghostly form instead and, um the, the table is absolutely barren looking it's not like it's heaped up for a great feast or something yes it's like nobody there doesn't seem to be any food on the 
table. Yes. Yeah, they're really going for exactly this. This world is so unbearably harsh. I mean, Kurosawa did amazing things. He literally shot on the slopes of Mount Fuji so he could use the volcanic ash that imbued the soil oh. and turned the soil black. So he trucked everybody up to the, sl- the slopes of Mount Fuji, literally so he could get this kind of seared world with black, a black ground. Wow. Um, and then he trucked volcanic ash back to the studio when they were doing, you know, interior stuff so you could see it outside. Oh, my God. Um, so there. Yeah. So you could go even more extreme if you want. But this is plenty. Extreme it's plenty extreme. Like harsh, comfortless world of hardcore people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did you yeah. I didn't you know, I was a little bit puzzled at the beginning. It, it opens with the birds mm-hmm. and then you mm-hmm. see a human figure trudging across a landscape that I initially took for snow. But actually, when you get closer, you realize it's mm-hmm. sand. It's white sand. What the hell do you make of that? a little baffling. Okay. I, I actually didn't know. Because there's white sand all around the witch's pool. Yeah. It's like they went for a, the opposite of Kurosawa. Right? Instead of black mished, ashy soil, it's, it's this weird white sand that also looks, you know, like it won't grow anything. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I, I was a little puzzled too. Like, yeah, it's very, why are we doing beach and fog? But I think it's because they wanted a white world. I, I'm assuming that's what they want this white world. That's what they did. The Coens, when they went for, uh, in Fargo, they literally had to, they kept having to chase snow. There wasn't as much snow in Minnesota as usual because they were trying for a horizonless oh. effect of when the sky goes gray, white and the ground is gray, white Oof. and you can't see a horizon because they wanted the disorientation effect. So I think they were going for that. Okay. Let's have the fog and the ground match. That's my best guess. Mm, that's very cool. I wonder, do you have any idea where they shot it? Oh, shoot. I should have looked that up. No, I can't remember. Okay. I think I read it. And now I can't remember where they were. Because, you know, there is a, there's a place in New Mexico where, of course, a lot of mm-hmm. people do shoot in that state um, because of mm-hmm. tax breaks. Because uh, ca- of white sands. Yeah, because of white sands. And they went, yeah. I wonder if oh, it was there. Yeah. <laughs> but ah. there's a whole, like, oh. national park called White Sands. Um, shoot, I can't believe I can't remember. I literally can't. I'm sure I read it in one of the countless reviews, and now I can't remember. Yeah, okay, well. Or interviews, rather. Yeah. Anyway. But let's talk about, you know, the, the performance, perhaps, that ever, is getting the most attention, which is um, Catherine Hunter's. Woo! Um, witch slash witches. <laughs> okay, you um, warned me. Wow. You warned me. It was yes. so fucking scary. <laughs> so, yeah. She's like a contortionist. She seems like yes. an amazing actor. I mean, oh yeah. my God, just like chilling, um, creepiest delivery of the witch's speech. And like, mm-hmm. yeah, the first thing, well, besides just being creepy and little mm-hmm. um, and wiry like a bird, she, mm-hmm. they have her contort, like like a, yeah. you know, circus Sweet. contortionist in the, yes. <laughs> in the opening uh, witch speech. And then, mm-hmm. then her reflection in order to get three witches, yes. um, she's in front of this pool and there are mm-hmm. two of her reflected <laughs> in the pool, not in just the, one. Yes. It's brilliant. I love it. That is so brilliant. I was, I, I like exclaimed out loud. Like, there are two. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Me too. No, the other thrilling thing after, for me, it's thrilling just the when. And then when you get to the witch scene, and it's so powerful because the witches are a difficulty, right? How are you going to do the witches? Because witches, you know, they got to the point that they're almost corny and over familiar and, Mm -hmm. you know, double, double toil and trouble. And how do you make them, how do you make them have an an impact again? Mm And they do it through that kind, that kind of trick shot. Plus, they've got this actor who apparently the Coens and um, Francis McDormand know very well. They've been following, you know, again, they're big stage. Yeah. They've been following her work for many years and trying to figure out a, a role for her. And it's she apparently specializes in this kind of physically extreme role. She played a whole part, as I think, 
thing. He's playing a, like a simian, like a, I forget if it was an ape or a chimpanzee, but with a Whoa. kind of terrifying, realistic ability to simulate animal behavior. Oh my god! There's a scene where she where she does a crow performance. It's very brief because you know she goes back and forth between her crow shape and, and this human semi human shape. She is so thin. Mm-hmm. And then when she starts bending her arms back in ways that would dislocate your arm, <laughs> you, you're just so wigged out because you don't, and her speech delivery, it's so guttural and so awful. I mean, her first line, she cra- she's bent, all bent over and huddled up and she turns her head toward the sky, apparently talking to crows, and says something like, where's thou been, sister? Killing swine. Mm. And it's just the most like step back, scary <laughs> line delivery. Oh and then on top of that, the, the, the terrifying trick shots of her, um, which persist at a later scene. She, she's going to be sitting on the rafters overhead like three vultures. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so it's just it's such an important performance because it knocks you out of your, your ordinary expectations. So completely you're just like, what the hell is happening when she starts contorting? You're just like, ah. Yeah, you don't know what's going on. And that's the perfect way to get you into this mode of receptivity for everything that's going to happen, because there's going to be so much extreme stuff that's happened that's going to happen. Yeah. With Macbeth just suddenly racing toward murder and power. It's going to happen so fast that something has to happen to jar you out of your your quotidian expectations. And that was a brilliant way to do it. Totally. And I just like in reading about her briefly, I guess she's known for her shape-shifting qualities, as you say, mm-hmm. and which like extends to she's played a lot of um roles traditionally reserved for men. So like she, mm-hmm. I guess she was the first British woman to play King Lear professionally. Mm. Oh yes, I read that. Mm. Yeah. So there's something about her like that's very indeterminate, which is, mm-hmm. you know, very yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Which yes. I li- you literally might think you're watching special effects when you're watching a performance. Yeah. It's like what what is she doing? And she's just She's got her arms buried in the sand when you first see her. It's just like, ah, what? It, it, again, she takes up position, postures, and she's so painfully thin mm-hmm. that you don't know how to, you just don't know how to take her. <laughs> you just don't know. And that's perfect. That is perfect. Yeah. So that they found this amazing woman who will now have a career. She's getting no end of ex- exclamations over how incredible. She's already had a big career on stage, obviously. Yeah. But, you know, this is not going to be the first time the Coens have found somebody so amazing from stage. William H. Macy and Marcia Gay Harden and yeah. uh, M- Michael Stuhlbarg and you know they've just gone one time after another and found some amazing person and put them on the map and I, if she wants it she could have a film career as well yeah but yeah it's really a shocker a great in an, in the best sense a shocker performance of the witch is a total reinterpretation that's so bold yeah and again puts you where you need to be for all everything that's going to be so stylized because that, at that point you're still in fog. Mm. And, you, and when you come out of the fog, you you might be expecting a more realist move. Yes. But once you've encountered her, <laughs> all bets are off yeah. and, and anything is possible. <laughs> yeah. And they, so that is fab. Oh, yeah. she's amazing. And they, you know, they continue with her and there, there is a, there is an amazing um, actual special effect, you know, like technical yeah. special effect mm-hmm. when she comes for the second time to Macbeth to tell him that, you know, he can't be killed by anyone of woman mm-hmm. born. And mm-hmm. uh, they, she creates uh, a prophecy in the water. Uh, right. And he's the Macbeth scoops up the water and the figure that's speaking to him continues to speak from like a little pool of water in his hands. It's just in like a hands. very uncanny thing that I wouldn't have thought of. And it's a beautiful touch that it was one of my favorite things in the film. 
Yes, it's very beautiful. And to have these be children spirits who are nevertheless the masters of the witches, according to Emily. Yes. Again, it's it's all there to like make you aware of how you don't understand how this how this world works at all. Right. <laughs> you know, nothing is following up your expectations. You don't know, you know, how much are we supposed to think, you know, he's lost his mind, he's somehow addled, but you don't really think that. You think, no, the world is expanding more and more and showing more and more usually of a of a dreadful and unfathomable nature, which makes it quite exciting viewing. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And um we didn't we talked about our mm-hmm. our our actors um should we talk mm-hmm. about what do you think what meaning does the colorblind casting lend to the film mm-hmm. you know I, I almost in my review i literally didn't mention it because it was so seamlessly handled so wonderfully handled that you you felt like god i'm relieved i don't have to talk about this it's uh-huh. just there <laughs> you know there there are, are are many many actors of many i think they're black actors almost all of them mixed in with the white actor and you just for the first time, perhaps, you just don't even think. It doesn't, you don't even think about it. It's terrific. I mean, obviously, pieces have been written about it. Yeah. Um, talking about, you know, the import of having, you know, such a number of black actors seamlessly mixed in among the white actors without drawing a lot of attention to it. You know, Macduff, Lady Macduff, mm-hmm. obviously, Denzel Washington as Macbeth. Um, I'm trying to think. Is that all the. All those the are the figures? main. Yeah, those are the main players. The main ones. Yeah. But there's a number of others in smaller roles. You know, they're just throughout throughout the cast and i i don't even know what more to say other than how how wonderful not to have to (laughs) yeah not to even be aware of it hardly um slash film.com which you share with me eileen Mm. had a good very interesting take on it um you know so Macbeth and mcduff the person who slays Macbeth, uh they're both Mm. played by black actors and Mm. it they said um it's actually really interesting to read it in terms of contemporary race and gender politics because mm-hmm. Macbeth in many ways uh, you know we talked about Denzel's um suppressed rage and the way that mm-hmm. like he you know puts a little smile on to hide his disgust um mm. the the author of the slash film article said you know this is really interesting because of course like many black men in especially contemporary American society need to mm-hmm. suppress their rage in order to mm-hmm. you know continue uh, to really circulate in the world with um success and without having violence rain down upon them um but what's kind of interesting is like the mcduff character is um a, a more more gentle and you know yes. feeling and so if this is a battle of masculinity at the end uh, particularly black mm-hmm. masculinity the mm-hmm. you know the more like well-rounded <laughs> Um, the warrior who's also, uh, you know, with, uh, a feeling, thoughtful, reflective person ends up winning. Mm-hmm. Um, so you could read it that way if you wanted to. It's it, I think it's both. You know, it's so abstract. And of course, the mm-hmm. whole uh, set is abstract and the whole like um, tone mm-hmm. of the film is very abstract that I think colorblind casting like with all Shakespeare, you know, works perfectly. Um, but you can also read it, it with like a contemporary lens of what race and gender means today in the mm-hmm. country that's mm-hmm. or, or, you know, the world that's receiving this work right now. And it also has meaning that makes sense and works, you know, right. so right. it works and, on all the levels. It's interesting that, that the, the person who wrote in Slash Film name is, I think I'm pronouncing this right, Livy Scott, L-Y-V-I-E, yeah. put it, in fact, Macbeth hasn't been this unapologetically black since 1936 when a then 20 year old Orson Welles adapted the play for a production set in Haiti 
Wells's so-called Voodoo Macbeth inarguably walked so de- so that Denzel's own Macbeth could run mm. straight into the public consciousness with little to no mention of race. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of both landmark important and can fly under the radar. It's kind of both at the same time in that in that summary paragraph. But yeah, another thing she does argue about the point you just made about Macduff versus Macbeth modeling black masculinity. There is a protracted scene where Macbeth, Macduff's whole family has been slaughtered by Macbeth because he's fled to England. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he's told of this, he's being urged immediately by the other characters, I think both of whom are white, um, um, to get over it yeah. <laughs> and turn essentially turn his grief immediately into rage and readiness for battle. Mm-hmm. And he has lines basically saying, you know, I have to feel this uh, first <laughs> before I can turn right around and plan my revenge. Um, so there's, there's a lot of interesting emphasis given. I'm not sure you tell me if you've seen Macbeth before, how much, how much this is hit this, this, yeah. How you want to talk about gender, especially, is it essentializing in Macbeth? Is it countering the essentializing in Macbeth? And there's certainly certain, there's certainly scenes where you think, Oh, that's that's actually pretty tricky. Oh yeah. Um, the main the main one is Lady Macbeth saying "unsex me here" mm-hmm. because she wants to take on what she regards as fundamental masculine tribute, you know, attributes. Right. I want to have no pity. <laughs> I want to have no compassion for anyone because I want to be able to kill and not care in order to get power. That's a masculine set of tribute. Yeah. Attribute. But then just pre, you know, not long previous to that, she's been lamenting. In, a, in one of the many quotable famous lines that Macbeth has too much of the milk of human kindness in him yeah. to take that, what she calls the nearest way, the nearest way to power. So that's what she's going to have to deal with, that, that he's too soft, he's too compassionate. So, but he's, he's a man. And so she's, you're going back between those two scenes. They're almost immediately one after another in one saying, but his characteristics are, are what would have been associated with the feminine and yet she wants to take on absolutely the characteristics of the masculine. And she's going to have to use that against him. You know, you're a man, she says, when you've done the deed. Yes, and not before. that's true. Yeah, I don't want to make too yeah. too much of a case for like radical gender politics, but one could right. read <laughs> but tricky at least <laughs> yeah and one could even read ahead. unsex me here speeches just like free me of femininity so i can do this mm-hmm. i don't think it necessarily means i need to take on warlike masculinity although as you say elsewhere in the play it does seem like mm-hmm. his manhood at least through her eyes is dependent upon his capacity for violence mm-hmm. but you know um, how exciting to be like unsex me here, <laughs> just like free mm. me, free me from you know the from the birch. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. as always with Shakespeare, it's like really not reducible to uh, like either or, and it like I think every production has its viewpoint, and this one, uh, I it's complicated. It's complicated. I think. It's a, it acknowledges all the expectation, traditional expectations of gender, but the characters certainly don't conform to them like uniformly, you know, mm-hmm. like life. Like, you know, obviously the society has certain ideas of roles, but most human beings don't conform to them wholesale. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. um, well, and it is there, there are nice moments when the, when the Lady Macbeth character has to just demonstrate the most utter, like, fed up <laughs> uh-huh. um, impatience with her husband because he just can't, he can't stay on course. So, like, when he messes up the murder scene, 
by taking the, she had placed daggers next to the guards who were guarding King Duncan so they can be blamed for killing him afterward, after Macbeth has murdered him. She's drugged their wine. Hmm. Um, he then collects the daggers and brings them back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's like, what are you doing? <laughs> what? Take them back immediately. The daggers have to be with them so we can accuse them of the murder. <laughs> and he's like, I can't go back. I can't go back out there. I can't go back into it because he's so freaked out from killing King Duncan. He can't function. And she has to grab them and like look of contempt she gives <laughs> as the door closes. It's just like, God, I know. try to get anything accomplished with you around. I know. <laughs> it's great. So yeah, there are some beautiful moments. She has some wonderfully deadly looks that are very, very nice. I have to say. I, yeah. She does ravaged very well. Oh my god! I mean, her to me, her performance in the film was the most vivid. Mm-hmm. I don't know if mm-hmm. you have other favorites. Um, so many people did so well. I loved Alex Hassel as Ross. Oh, I know as Ross. Ooh. He did very nice. He work as Ross. You know, he looks like one of those birds. <laughs> yeah. And he's even dressed with a kind of slightly weird wing-like uh, shoulder thing coming off of his arms. Yes, I think maybe that's intentional. Yeah, but, yeah, he's the big. I don't know, call him the trickster, but he's the one who's constantly, apparently, betraying everybody all the time. Exactly. <laughs> he's the complete two-face, um, which comes across so vividly in this. It seems really strongly underscored. Perhaps it's his acting. Perhaps it's just the way they're setting him up and the way he looks. He looks perfect for that part. Yeah, yeah. It, he, yeah, he was a really, um, just like, haunting presence. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. of course, we love, um, what's his, uh, Brendan Gleeson born born yeah, born yeah. to this <laughs> but mm-hmm, i also mm-hmm. loved um H- harry melling as malcolm yes he's you may you may remember harry melling as the wingless wingless thrush <laughs> in a memorable segment from the ballad of buster scruggs he's he was very brilliant in that too and, and really his gift for recitation was really demonstrated in that and yes but carry on oh, what about it uh, no i just i think he's like a delightful actor and it, does he have a yeah. big stage career I don't know. I would guess because again, when he does Wingless Thrush, he's doing nothing but rest- difficult recitations from a million texts. Yeah. Um. So I think he's probably one of the one of the many stage finds of the Coen Brothers. Okay. I can remember being in a production company briefly, an independent production company, and begging the people in charge, "Let's go get the actors from the stage." I know. It's so smart because <laughs> then you get everybody in Hollywood talking. You found some somebody they don't know about. They're not going to stage productions, and you know, and you. You'll get all the, in, you know, you'll make all the impact. It will cost you much less money, you know, and no one will pay His face, <laughs> I mean, the virtue of these people among their, you know, talents is that they have mm. faces that don't look like yes. everyone else. It's exactly. so refreshing. because memorable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, Hollywood people all kind of look the same, especially uh, like American film is the worst for just like the mm-hmm. most generic faces. And mm-hmm. Harry's, you know, Harry's got just like a, just like kind of an interesting, you know, unique looking face. One eye is kind mm-hmm. of higher than the other, but, <laughs> but he's handsome mm-hmm. yeah. in his way. You know, he's, I guess he was in Harry Potter. So if you know Harry oh, Potter, he? I, yeah, didn't even know that. <laughs> I, didn't I just, I just brought up the Wikipedia. He plays Harry uh-huh. Potter's cousin, Dudley Dursley. Sure. I don't know. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> But um, uh, yeah, he's got just such a like refreshing mug. And it's the same thing with McDormand, who, of course, you know, got her start on stage. It's just like so refreshing to look upon mm. a countenance <laughs> that yes. that doesn't look like you're watching a like, I don't even know, a commercial, you know, like it's yeah, exactly. Yeah, because especially if TV acting is even worse, the worst the uniformity of faces. Absolutely. And 
And yeah, that's that's another of the qualities I have to say about this film that 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 th- that is wonderful. That because it throws you off your expectations. Yeah, just the fact that the way all of the sea of faces, and you, you're constantly seeing these collections in twos, threes, fives, all these wonderful handlings of mise en scène, where you've got people grouped in different ways, sort of demonstrating different loyalties, different levels of of conniving. Yeah. Um, but it's such a sea of wa- hyper watchable faces. And it's wonderful. That is a wonderful richness of of the film. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, you know, I don't know. My my thoughts are coming to a close. Do you have anything yes, else that you think? as well. I mean, is there anything we haven't talked about? You know, one, one last thing. Macbeth is usually, you know, this is literally, you know, the cliff notes of Macbeth. It's supposed to be this portrait of, of ambition, the pitfalls of ambition. Is that what we're seeing? Uh, and if so how so that's a really good question i mean on a very obvious level yes you know like um Mm. you'll be i love that it's all about being haunted forever by your bad deeds if you feel like this is something you can put behind you this (laughs) the play is here to say nope (laughs) like the Mm -hmm. the crow will fly into your house and you will be driven mad by the Mm -hmm. by the bad works you do um Mm. is it really about the pitfalls of ambition that's a really good question because because mcduff yeah i mean what i loved about it was it just seemed like the emphasis on the prophecy is so strong Mm. that it's almost like the 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 level it's just you know of course it is <laughs> you know just get that out of the way okay. of course it is but just where are you putting the weight and it just seems like the immediate impact of the prophecy is so enormous that that that, that, that it takes on a quality of fadedness mm-hmm. that maybe is is bigger than in some other productions where you might really feel like you're more like watching purely a study of the workings of ambition. You're right. It, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it was not. And it, God, I'm glad you brought that up because what I thought was refreshing is like, it's not mm. terribly psychological, the, mm. the interpretation. And I, by that, mm. I don't mean like there's no motivation or the actors are bad at portraying psychological mm. states. They're good. Mm-hmm. But it's, I think there's like a tendency, especially in the last, you know, like in the 20th century to mm. like over psychologize everything and make everything about one person's tortured inner world. And mm-hmm. that's not what this is. Like, you're right. This is about like a world that's sort of like kill or be killed. Um, mm-hmm. There's like a dark pre predestiny that you are going mm-hmm. to fulfill. You know, uh, it doesn't mean that there's no free will, but it it's, it's not as much about like internal battles as mm-hmm. larger forces. Right. And, and it does seem like to the extent that it is, it's like you it, you can be given a forceful shove toward a quality that would have been banked in you forever. And I think that's one of the one of the sort of interesting parts of Denzel Washington's performance is he doesn't seem like a particularly ambitious man. There's something about his whole look, uh-huh. his whole inclination toward softness. That of course he has it, but it's like he, something had to happen to him that was that was huge. And it seems like such a big deal is made of the impact of the witch's performance and the strangeness of this nightmare world we're in. That it's almost like that it's more like you and any quality of his could have been shoved to the fore in this kind of nightmare way, and mm-hmm. which I which I like about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but because you're right, you could do you. I'm sure you could do Macbeth in a totally a totally different way. Right. Someone really burning up um, with ambition the whole time and desperately toward it or something. You could do something with that more than they're doing than they're doing here. Yeah. 
and it just seems like this is more like no we set this thing rolling and now it's just rolling <laughs> and it's rolling fast and it's all gonna happen and 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 it seems almost like he's surprised when it's happened right or he's just <laughs> so completely undone he's like holy shit it's done and now i'm screwed i'm doomed no that's so true and again like everything about this is an antidote to like the mm. prevailing styles of the day <laughs> Yeah, which are absolutely. so wearing and predictable and absolute <laughs> cinematic drudgery. So this is uh-huh. this is a feast indeed. <laughs> yeah, and I love I do love it because you know, I think like probably many people, you know, Macbeth is a big fave of mine. Partly because I have my own little demon of ambition, maybe that doesn't show to others who think I'm nice and smiling. <laughs> and, you know, didn't get very far in life, but oh my god, if you suffer from it, you know who you are. <laughs> And, you know, it, it's a real tormentor quality. So it's it's wonderful alone to have to have that being represented, however you want to lay the emphasis. Mm-hmm. It's in him and it's finally ignited. It's it's this the prophecy itself and the witches are working. It's fate. It's yeah, there's a million different ways you can come at or it's his wife uh, who's the one who's really driving him. However you want to look at it. Just that that quality alone is a study that seemed thrilling to me. I felt watching this like wow i feel starved for 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 this kind of shall we say ambitious um um kind of a work mm-hmm. i feel like i've been i've been really in the shallows for a long time without much to think about and now i see this and it was like wow this is a this is a this is a real thrill i so it, it just to me it was just like wow we are starving we really are starving and suddenly we get a feast presented to us Absolutely. So go cue it up. I don't think we're going to come up with a more ringing endorsement than that. No, no, definitely not. So that is it. We have wrapped up uh, our Tragedy of Macbeth, a banquet for starving film lovers episode. Thanks to your listeners. And of course, triple thanks to our subscribers who put us in goblets and daggers. If you're not a subscriber yet, but you like what you hear, please consider signing up with Patreon for all the Film Suck content instead of just the half that's publicly available. You can follow news of the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Join us in two weeks for our discussion of an Academy Award nominee. We haven't picked it yet because, of course, the nominations aren't out yet. They're, the nominations come out on February 8th, but we're going to select one of them to to focus on. Um, and, uh, yes, there'll be an announcement, of course, of coming out on various forms of social media beforehand. Until next time, thanks again for listening, you all. Thanks.